Hello and welcome. You're listening to Law and Legend with your hosts Sebastian O'Dell and Rick Scott. Law and Legend brings you myths and legends and fables from world folklore and mythology. We tell stories the way that they're meant to be told. And we do it in the style of traditional storytelling enriched with traditional music and dramatic audio work. This series of Law and Legend is called The Gates of Dream exploring tales of encounters between the heroes and heroines of Greek myth and the gods and spirits of the Greek underworld, the lands of dream, death, and darkest fate. This episode of Lore and Legend comes to you thanks to the contributions of our Patreon subscribers, Storyfolk, Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, and Sean Powell. Thanks to all of you for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. Please consider joining Christy, Paul and Sean in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, visit our website and click support us. In our fourth episode, we hear the tale of a master physician who draws the wrath of Zeus when he meddles with the law of life and death itself. From storyteller Sebastian O'Dell and featuring the music of Michael Levy, Sakilo and Caleb Hennessy, this is The Healer's Dream. Which of you is ready to be healed? The priest asks. You have journeyed here, possibly from kingdoms far away. You have purified both body and mind to enter this temple. Your journey is almost complete. The dream god is ready to receive you. If you are ready to welcome him, you will be alone. No one may dream with you. If you are ready, to submit to his wisdom and power, enter the sacred chamber of Asclepius, the healer. The traveler hesitates. He watches as the others around him rise to enter the abaton. Some limp, some are pale and barely able to stand. Yet they all seem to have a vitality and determination that he has never seen in the sick and lame on the streets of Corinth. There is some power at work here, but the traveller is unnerved by it. He has just climbed the hill from the city up to the temple with such exertion that he wondered how people managed it when burdened down by sickness. He was led through the temple by a priest where he saw the floors and walls crawling with snakes. And though he was told they would not harm guests of Asclepius, fear still made him feel a little nauseous. He saw dark and frightening images carved into the walls and ornaments from stories he has never heard. A priest approaches him. You are not prepared to receive the guidance of the god? A reply catches on his tongue. What he says is, forgive me, but I have a favour to ask. Before I can meet with the god, I wish for guidance from a more familiar source. 
Do you happen to know where I can find the seer Polyides? Polyides has taken up residence in this temple in his old age. He is sealed off from the world, as only the supplicants of Asclepius may enter the temple. The priests are not happy with this request. They whisper to each other, wearing looks of discomfort, suspicion. However, after a time, the traveller is told that Polyides is willing to meet them, and the priests will bring him there. He enters a room cut into the rock of the mountain. An old man is sat there by a blazing fire, and beside him is a statue of the god. The priests depart and leave the two men alone. The old man gestures for the traveller to sit. They tell me you did not wish to enter the dream chamber. Is there anything I can say to reassure you? He asks with a smile. This temple unsettles me, the traveller replies. When I was last in Corinth, there was no temple here. Now men from all over come and take part in its bizarre rituals. There is a great deal that does not seem right. Where did this strange god emerge from? It is only now that ordinary men have come across the name of Asclepius, the old man said. Yet Asclepius the healer has long been spoken of among physicians as the greatest man of healing there ever was. This does not satisfy the traveller. So he was a man. Is it not blasphemy then to worship him as a god? telling men that he can work miracles, all the while asking them to trust their dreams as divine revelation. Asclepius was a man, the old man admits, sired of Apollo and the mortal woman Coronis. But he has become so much more than this. I know of his power, for I have seen Asclepius in a dream of my own. Unlike other dreams, his dreams do not bring secrets from without but they allow the god to explore the troubles of the dreamers. But you did not come here for healing magic. Fear not, I will not have them eject you from the temple. You came to seek out my wisdom, and you will have it. Yet if you are still suspicious of this cult, would it surprise you to learn that I helped to found it? Yes, the seer whose wisdom you came here to seek. Though you are not sick now, you may in time have need of a healing night in this temple. So let me tell you about Asclepius, how I came to know him, how he turned from man to God, and the power of healing that he can offer. The tale begins in Crete, in the land of the Minoans, when I was called before King Minos. I was only a young physician in the palace court of Knossos, so it was strange that I would be brought before the king himself. In my young fervour, I imagined that Minos had been taken ill, and I felt honoured that the court might choose me to tend him. When I arrived, Minos did not look sick. He looked perfectly healthy perched atop his throne, and I was not invited to examine him. Instead, he showed me a newborn white heifer, and with no explanation, I was made to stand and watch it in silence. I must have watched for 40 minutes or more, 
wondering if this was a punishment for something I had done wrong. Then before my eyes, a wonder occurred. The calf's hide turned from white to deep red in a matter of seconds and without shedding an inch of skin. I gasped. To my surprise, the court around me did not react at all. In a tone of pure disinterest, the king told me that this happened every day and that shortly it would turn again from red to black. I guessed I was not the first one he had told this to. The point is, Minos went on, you must tell us. What shares this feature? Name one other thing in my kingdom that turns its colour as this calf does. Well, of course I had no answer. I'd just witnessed a miracle and already they wanted me to find another exactly the same. Afraid of disappointing my king though, I swore I would come up with an answer. But I couldn't think of anything. Nothing changed its hide twice a day. Not cows, or horses, goats, or oxen. The only thing I could think to do was wait until the hide turned black, in case seeing this would lead me to an answer. I caught myself in the midst of my embarrassment and shame, silently willing the calf's hide to darken immediately. I laughed at myself, just as my mother used to when we picked berries among the trees, when I would stare at a large red berry, as though I might ripen it by will alone. I had my answer. The mulberry, I said. The berry emerges white, but over time it deepens and darkens, first into red where it is still sour, and then black where it is to be picked. Just as this calf is each day, so is the berry through its life. Minos smiled. He told me that they had asked many others this question, to no avail. Now finally they had their answer. If I had known the trap that this victory had caught me in, I would not have been so pleased with myself as I was in that moment. My insight fulfilled half of a prophecy, he told me. The one who found the likeness of that heifer would heal the boy prince Glaucus. Faced at last with a task I understood, I swore to Minos that I would do whatever I could to help his son. But they did not take me to the boy's room in that palace. They took me down into the cellars, and they led me to the door of a storeroom. Without warning, the guards Ugh. thrust me inside and pulled the door shut violently. By the time I realised what was happening, they had slid the bar into place and I was locked in. And then, on a bench at the side of the room, I saw the dead body of Glaucus. And I realised just how much trouble I had landed myself in. I begged to be let go, though I knew it was no use. They would not let me go until I had brought the dead child's spirit back to his body. I knew I could not perform the task, for a physician may perform wonders with the constitution of body and spirit, but we have no magic to summon back spirits that have passed through the gates of Hades. 
I did not examine the boy, besides merely confirming that he was dead, as there was nothing I could do to remedy his ills. Yet King Minos was not worried I would fail. It had been foretold. So they would keep me here, and I too would die in this dank cellar dungeon. In some moments, I felt a great kinship with the lifeless Glaucus, abandoned in this room that would soon be tuned to the both of us. On the night, or what I took to be the night, of the second day, my thoughts began to turn to Asclepius. Yes, the one whose likeness you see before us now. At that time, still only a man to me, yet already the mythical hero of my profession, whose skill was sought out across the lands. His healing art never failed, they said. I wonder what he would do in this case, whether he would have found some means to challenge the strands of fate. Physicians have always been fond of telling the tale of his life, and I call it to my mind now. The sun god, Apollo, has loved many men and women, and perhaps because of the speed and ferocity of his passion, very few have loved him in return. The prophets Cassandra and undying Sybil were both cursed by Apollo after they spurned his advances. Daphne, loyal to Artemis, allowed herself to be turned to a tree sooner than give up her virginity with him. Marpessa chose the mortal Idas over Apollo, and even when the boy Hyacinthus did return his affections with the same ardour, cruel death had taken him away. So when the woman Coronis had loved him and remained by his side, Apollo's passion for her became great and wild, as did his fear to lose her. Then one day, his raven flew to his side to inform him that Coronis had lain with a mortal man in love. Just like Marpessa, Coronis had given favour to a mortal. Apollo's rage was unimaginable. He was the son of Zeus, bringer of light, eye of truth, and she had scorned him and his love. Unable or unwilling to contain his fury, Apollo loosed his arrows. And struck Coronis down where she stood. Even as the life drained from her, in the eye of Apollo's wrathful glare, she knew that he had loved her. You fool, she cried. You had not lost me yet. And now, in your haste, you lose both me and the sun growing within me. And then she fell dead. Apollo saw the error of his ways when he realized that she had been bearing his child. He was not used to remorse, but it now hit him sharply. A panic set in. 
Perhaps there was still time to save the child, but he had to act quickly. He cut open the belly of his slain love and retrieved the boy. Then he rushed him to a healer, the centaur Chiron. Miraculously, Chiron was able to nurse baby Asclepius through the development he should have had in the womb. He looked after the boy until he was able to walk, talk, and survive on his own. By this time, the centaur had grown to love Asclepius, and he became the boy's foster father. It was from Chiron that Asclepius learned his skill in medicine. He was taught methods and remedies that had never been shared with humans. He might have stayed among the centaur, but like me, Asclepius was the subject of a prophecy. Chiron's daughter Osiroe foresaw that Asclepius must go to live among men, where he would become the greatest healer ever known to mankind though he would be struck down by the gods in his pursuit. Indeed, there never was a greater physician than Asclepius. No wound was too deep for him to bind, no sickness too pervasive to banish. He succeeded where no others had, like when he cured the eyesight of the Lord of Epidaurus. And indeed, Asclepius had died mysteriously and many said that he had been struck down by Zeus. Had his art become too powerful? Was he stealing souls destined for Hades? Theories abounded. No one knew. These thoughts gave me a little comfort. If his prophecy had come true, perhaps mine would too. I had nothing else to hang my hope on. I had not eaten or drunk in two or three days. The close, foul air around Glaucus and the filth of the cellar all curdled together and swam into my fevered mind. My strength began to ebb away. So I lay down upon the ground. I offered a prayer to Asclepius. I'm not really certain why. And then I fell asleep, unsure if I would ever wake again. This was the moment Asclepius appeared to me. As far as I know, it was the first moment he had appeared to any mortal since his death. He was a large, muscular figure, with locks of curled hair falling about his face. I could not place his age. His face was line-worn, with deep and far-seeing eyes. But his hair was full and bright, and he wore the hopeful smile of youth. He strode towards me, clutching in his hand a strong, ashen staff. Weak as I was, I leapt to my feet to welcome him. At first, I believed this must be his shade, come from the land of the dead, 
But then he clasped my hand, and he was as real and radiant as any man I have ever seen in the flesh. And he spoke. Among the company of gods, I am appointed to watch over and guide healers. And I've seen you here, great Polyides, forsaking your heart and abandoning your patience. Why do you give yourself to misery? I was too shocked to answer. How can it be, I asked, that you, who went down to the lands of the dead, are now among the heavenly host? Ah, he replied. I was never taken to the land of Hades. A thunderbolt of Zeus destroyed my body, but he did not intend to obliterate me. At his behest, I was kept from crossing the sticks. My spirit preserved within the lands of sleep. In this form, I have lost the limitations of my physical body, and I have become the divinity of healing I was born to be. What limitations, I asked. What divine healing was he capable of? A mortal man, he said, cannot appear before his patients as I do to you now in their dreams. Nothing else provides the healer with such insight, power in dealing with the subject's spirit. In dreams, the spirit stands alone, set apart from the concerns of their waking life, confronting their sickness head-on. And now I have answered your question, you must answer mine. Why do you lie here in helplessness? I told him of the task that I had been set. It was beyond my ability, I said. Then a thought occurred. If your powers are so vastly improved, would you be able to examine the young prince? Asclepius now looked at Glaucus for the first time. It is your spirit that is open to me, he said, not his. Still, if you would like, I will take a look at his body. I am in your debt, I said, and I'm sorry for the conditions you will have to work in, among the rats and stagnant water. A god should be treated to better than this. Asclepius shook his head. You apologize, yet you too are asked to work in these conditions. Come, let us make this space more favorable to all of us. If the vapors and fluids are polluted, the spirit cannot thrive. Then the god walked to the wall behind Glaucus and pressed his staff to a stone at its base. The stone began to slide to the side, and the stones next to it slid too, until a gap of a foot or two had opened up in the wall, and a space lay beyond of empty, silent darkness. Then from all around me, the water that had laid still upon the stones began to run across the floor as though down a slope towards the gap that had been opened, and it all flowed out. The rats that had been sniffing around Glaucus's body stopped, turned, and scurried off through it as well. The filth was gone, 
Even the air smelled cleaner. My mind felt clearer too. There, Asclepius said. Now we may see to this patient of yours. He examined Glaucus at great length. He traced his fingers along the boy's skin, lifted up his limbs and listened to his chest. I was so transfixed by the great healer at work, I forgot I was there at all. But as he worked, something emerged from out of the void he had made in the wall. It was a snake, a great serpent crawling along the floor and heading directly towards Asclepius. I somehow knew that a single bite from that beast would kill a man stone dead. I might have cried out to alert him had I not lost all sense of my own presence. Events were unfolding inexorably. The snake, a symbol of healing power just as much as one of danger and death, had arrived just as the great healer began his work. Whether it would help him or kill him was just part of the mystery that was occurring before me. When it reached Asclepius, the snake did not strike. It simply began to coil its way around his leg. Perhaps because of his absolute methodical focus, the god did not react at all. Even when the full length of the creature was wrapped around him and its head rose up at his waist, he just held his hands at the boy's stomach, his face scrunched up in thought. Then, absently, as though to seize an instrument that he needed, Asclepius reached to his side. In so doing, he put his hand directly onto the head of the snake. Still, the creature did not bite him. Instead, Asclepius clasped his hand around its neck and drew it round in front of him. In his other hand, he took his staff, which I saw was now a sword tipped with brass. And without a change in his expression, he raised the blade and brought it through the head of the serpent. The next thing I recall from this dream is that Asclepius was gone. Where I did not know, but Glaucus was still lying dead upon the bench. I couldn't give up. I had to bring Asclepius back. I saw no other way he could have left, so I knelt down before that hole in the wall, and I began to call out for him. This was how I came face to face with the second snake. A moment of paralysed shock as it appeared from the abyss. Then I retreated as quickly and quietly as I possibly could. Thankfully, the serpent did not pursue me. It turned and slithered up to the body of the first snake, which was lying motionless upon the ground. Between its teeth, the newcomer clutched a plant of some kind, a herb that I had never seen before, with wide leaves of purple and pink. As I watched, the snake laid this on the ground and tore a chunk off it in its teeth. Horrifyingly, I then watched it sink its teeth into the corpse of its dead fellow. I had seen many wonders over the last few days, but what happened next was the crowning glory. The snake 
that had lain dead upon the ground opened its eye, and despite taking a blade clean through its head, it lifted itself off. The second snake now moved away from it and lowered its head to retrieve the herb that it had dropped. It must have been the power of that plant, which had revived the dead creature, some strange remedy never yet dreamt of by man and the snakes were preparing to leave with it. Up to that moment, it had seemed that events of legend were taking place in that room, and I was far too weak and insignificant to influence them. Yet now, this life-giving herb was about to return to whatever dark place it had come from. My only lifeline would disappear, and there was no one else to stop it. I saw what I had to do. I broke out of my lethargy and I sprang forward, shouting and waving my arms about. I didn't know if the snake would flee or strike me down, but without that herb I would die regardless. That second of blind, furious action jolted me awake. I looked around. The snakes were gone. But the hole they had emerged from was gone as well, leaving a solid stone wall and a room still filled with filth and fetid miasma. The only sign that the dream had taken place at all was a herb lying on the ground, just where the snake had left it. Though I was disoriented, I wasted no time in crushing up a leaf of the herb and pouring it into the throat of Glaucus with a splash of stagnant water. Disgusting as it was, it could hardly make matters worse. And within a few seconds, I heard a small gurgling noise coming from the boy. Then a cough, and then all at once, Glaucus was choking and spluttering. Somehow, the herb had drawn his spirit back from the gates of Hades. The guards came in when I cried that the prince was alive, and we were both returned to the chambers of the palace. I did not speak to Minos when he came to see me, as I was waiting for an apology. Being left for dead in a cellar had filled me with an unexpected belligerence. Minos took no notice. He said he was grateful for what I had done, but his son was still sick. He was alive, but not responsive, so my job was not yet done. When I went to the boy's chamber, I examined him properly. It still was not obvious to me what had caused his death. I thought back to when Asclepius had examined him. I wondered if he had revealed the ailment in some way I had forgotten, but I remembered that he had not spoken at all throughout. My mind came to the last thing he said just before he began. If the vapours and fluids are polluted, the spirit cannot thrive. That was just before he had expelled all the room's pollutants. Then it made sense to me. The last thing he had done was to hold his hands at the boy's stomach. Asclepius had seen what had troubled the spirits in that cellar, and he had shown me how to remedy it. I called to the palace guards, demanding water and strong mustard seed, with which I prepared a singularly acrid and pungent tonic and fed it to the boy. It had the desired effect, 
Glaucus pitched forward, and within a few seconds, he was spewing his guts upon the bed. He went on in that way until he had nothing left to spew. And then he said, Why would you feed me something so foul? Aren't you supposed to be a healer? For my reward, Minos offered me treasure, lands, and cattle. I refused them all. I only asked for a ship and enough men to crew it. I wanted to put as much distance as possible between myself and that tyrant. Now Polyides looks up at the cave ceiling. I was furious with Minos. Yet the more time that passes, the more my anger seems misplaced. It was foretold that I would bring back his son, and I did. And only because I was locked in that cellar. Or else I would have given up far sooner, prophecy or none. Still, I had no interest in repeating the experience. So when my fame spread and others came to seek my skill as a healer, I would not help them myself. I had given up that mantle, I said. But I couldn't leave them with nothing. So I offered another possibility. I told this new tale of Asclepius, how he was risen as a god and of the healing he could perform in dreams. Soon there were many who wished to know more. Some came to devote themselves to this god. The cult of Asclepius was born. For my efforts, Apollo blessed me. It was this time that I began to receive my visions of the future. I became a seer. And now men from many lands journey to this place and receive healing. Just as Asclepius told me, he meets them in their dreams, set apart from all distractions. In this state, the body's dysfunctions rise to the surface and the god wields power no man can have. Only once he has instructed the dreamer can the priests help to interpret. As they say in the ritual, great is Asclepius. The stranger had been listening in fascinated silence, and he had waited for Polyides to finish. Now he lifts his head and speaks. One thing I must know. You said you only used one leaf of the miraculous herb. What about the rest? Do you still have it? Do you have that power that mortals have always dreamed of? The power to cheat death? The old man smiles. That power was not meant for men to possess. Death must always remain a consequence that they cannot escape. To keep life in its place, beholden to the gods for judgment and good fortune. But still, the young man presses. Do you have the herb? The old man shrugs. I lost it. You lost it? So the old man explains. When I was called to discuss my reward, I left all my belongings in the prince's chamber. When I returned, they were all there, but the herb was nowhere to be seen. I had not yet told anyone about its powers. I didn't dare to call anyone in the palace a thief, so I simply left. I was thankful to escape with my life. Sometimes there are tales of a plant that revives the dead, but in every case it soon disappears 
to resurface somewhere else much later. Perhaps it is an old power of the earth that Zeus has never yet learned to destroy, but he drives it from the hands of any mortal who finds it. For myself, at least, I do not mourn it. The gods have blessed my life quite enough already. based on the legend of Asclepius, a Greek deity of healing whose followers and worshippers were known for the practice of dream incubation. Asclepius was the patron god and reputed ancestor of the Asclepiads, the ancient guild of doctors, and individuals who were sick would journey to his temple, the Asclepian, to receive guidance on how they could be healed from their ills. In statues of Asclepius, which would stand in the temple grounds, Asclepius was depicted as a kindly, bearded man leaning on a staff with a snake coiled around it. This symbol was the rod of Asclepius, and it's still used today as a symbol of the medical and health professions, although it is often confused with the Cadicus, the staff carried by Hermes, which features two coiled snakes rather than a single one. Serpents are notable in Greek mythology, not just for being associated with danger and death, but also healing and life-giving. They were also believed to be the guardians of sacred springs and wells, which were often believed to have healing properties. For all of these reasons, non-venomous snakes would often roam freely around the grounds of Asclepius' temples. As visitors entered, they read testimonials from others of how the intervention of Asclepius had healed them and see the gifts that they dedicated to the god, often carvings depicting the parts of the body which had been healed. After rigorous ritual preparations of purification, fasting and religious devotions, which could last for days, months or even years, guests would be invited to sleep in the abatum or inner sanctum, where they might receive a visit from the god in their dreams. Upon waking, the priests of the temple would speak with the dreamer to try to interpret the messages imparted by Asclepius and would recommend treatment upon this basis. Asclepius was mentioned as a healer or physician in the writings of Homer, but here he wasn't depicted as divine but mortal. His sons, Macan, and Podalerius were physicians in the Greek camp in the Iliad. The cult of Asclepius as a god of healing not arise until long after the Bronze Age and even after the time of Homer. Its epicenter was the Asclepion at Epidaurus on the Argolid Peninsula, the mythological place of Asclepius's birth. The cult rose to the height of its prominence after the plague of Athens in the 5th century BCE. The historian Robert Moss argued that the Pool of Bethsheda, where Jesus is said to have performed healing miracles in the Gospel of John, was originally an Asclepian shrine, though one in which the god had been merged with the Egyptian god Serapis. Asclepius Serapis, he believes, would have been the angel that troubled the waters, whose healing the people had gathered to receive. 
Certainly the cult of Asclepius was popular in the Levant in the time of Jesus, just as it was in many places across the Mediterranean, including Rome. Attempting to induce revelatory dreams is a practice known as dream incubation. It involves usually sleeping in a sacred space or area with the hope of receiving divine guidance or assistance. These spaces can include caves, temples, sanctuaries, groves, tombs, hillsides, wells, and even churches, shrines, and altars. Any place that is thought to have a special connection with divinity. And it's a process that's been part of many cultures and religions throughout human history in Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, and in ancient China and Mesopotamia and beyond. For many believers, religion, well-being, and medicine were all intimately connected. When orthodox methods of care failed, individuals turned to the divine for help, seeking knowledge of causes and cures they assumed were not just purely physical, but also moral and spiritual in nature. Though the methods of the cult of Asclepius may seem superstitious in our era, the practice of dream interpretation was tightly intertwined with the growth of medicine in the ancient world. The order or guild of physicians that emerged in ancient Greece became known as the Asclepidae. Some believed them to be the descendants of the god in his human form. The practice of dream interpretation inspired and guided many of the intellectual forefathers of scientific medicine, including the Greek physician Hippocrates, and the Romans Rufus and Galen. In fact, the original Hippocratic Oath required physicians to swear by the gods of healing, Apollo, Asclepius, and his daughters Hygieia and Panacea. Ancient writers, including ancient medical writers, tended to view dreams as very important diagnostic tools. The idea, presented in this story, that the sicknesses of the body can most clearly be seen in dreams when the spirit is removed from the distractions of daily life, is actually drawn from the Hippocratic text on regimen. Interestingly, this places the dreams of Asclepius at a crossroads in Greek thought. In the majority of Greek myths, dreams are presented as visits either from dream spirits or from real individuals, humans or gods. Naturalistic explanations began to develop with the growth of philosophy and natural science from the 8th century BCE, and by the 5th century, references to dream spirits had declined considerably. The Hippocratic view mentioned above, as an exploration of the inner life of the patient, is again a naturalistic interpretation. But many of these influential physicians were members of the cult of Asclepius, and had dreams that they believed to be visits or messages from Asclepius, notably including Galen. And even as belief in dreams as external visitations declined, belief in prophetic dreams remained alive, even Aristotle, who was very sceptical about divine dreams, believed that some dreams were genuine guides to future events. The resurrection of the boy Glaucus is a feat attributed in various stories to both the seer Polyides and to Asclepius, so we have merged these legends into a joint venture in this telling. The story as it relates to Polyides is thought to be contained within a lost Euripides play, Bellerophon. Whichever of the two revived Glaucus, Asclepius is supposed to have restored a number of individuals to life when he was a man, including Hippolytus, who had been killed by a curse called upon him by his father Theseus. Legends tell that Asclepius incurred the wrath of Zeus for this perversion of the natural order, 
and for fear that he would teach this art to other humans, Zeus struck him dead with a thunderbolt. Apollo then appealed to Zeus on his son's behalf, and Asclepius was then transformed into a god, as well as entering the heavens as the constellation Ophiuchus. A herb that brings the dead back to life appears in numerous tales in Greek mythology. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, he records a story of a fisherman who finds a herb that brings his dead fish back to life, and so he eats it himself. The fisherman receives immortality at the cost of becoming part man, part fish. This man, as it happens, was also called Glaucus, though no myths have linked him to the son of Minos. Some ancient writers have suggested that the herb was actually sown by Kronos, the titan and father of the Olympian gods. The herb therefore fits into the mythical pattern of ongoing conflict between the intentions of Zeus and the Olympians on the one hand, and the powers that predate them on the other. In another story, the power to raise the dead was given to Asclepius by Athena in the form of the blood of a gorgon. As the gorgons were described by Hesiod as descendants of the primordial gods, this also reflects that basic instability. Though the Olympians rule the earth, there are clearly other powers that defy their order. The story you heard in this episode has echoes in later legends. Alexander the Great was said to have had a dream about snakes and reviving herbs during his invasion of Harmatelia in modern-day India. The Harmatelian soldiers tipped their weapons with snake venom, which caused his soldiers a grim and painful death. Legend has it that Alexander dreamt he saw a snake carrying a specific plant in its mouth. When this herb was applied to the wound of one of his soldiers, they recovered and this discovery allowed his armies to overwhelm the Harmatelians. This is most likely an apocryphal tale designed to heighten the divine significance of Alexander and his campaign, and may therefore have been drawn from the legend of Asclepius or Polyides. Most of the important features of this tale also appear in a grim fairy tale called The Three Snake Leaves, Arne Thompson Type 612. As in the Greek myth, one snake revives another with a special plant, the three leaves, and a human takes the plant to revive another human. The lasting impact of the herb myth is perhaps unsurprising, given the appeal that the prospect of immortality tends to bring to humans. Similarly, throughout the Christian era in Europe, though God ordained a natural life and death for each person, many people still ardently sought after the philosopher's stone to provide them with the elixir of life and eternal youth. Human beings still sought to defy the heavens in their pursuit of eternal life. Next week, a troubled youth is exiled from his city for killing a murderous tyrant, but he is destined to soar high on the wings of Pegasus. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, The Gates of Dream. Episode 4, The Healer's Dream. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. This episode featured music by Michael Levy, Sakilo, and Caleb Hennessy. Check the episode notes to find links where you can hear their music and support their creativity. Additional sounds and music were sourced from the community at freesound.org and full audio credits are available at www.lawandlegend.co.uk. 
for news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, you can visit us there at the website or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Of Law and Legend.